when the New Delhi Municipal Corporation decided on a petition from the Delhi Member of Parliament, Mahesh Giri, to remake Aurangzeb Road as APJ Abdul Kalam Marg, it should not have come as a surprise to many. After all, Aurangzeb, the last of the main Mughal emperors, has for long been the cruel, narrow-minded fundamentalist foil to his great-grandfather, Akbar the Great, who is described as liberal, ecumenical, and a great empire-builder. Aurangzeb imprisoned his father, killed his brothers, including the learned, religiously tolerant Dadashiko, executed the Sikh guru Teg Bahadur, and harassed the Maratha king Shivaji, destroyed temples, and imposed the jizya on Hindus, and even banned music from the Mughal court. Obstinate to a fault, he spent the last 25 years of his life trying to subdue the recalcitrant rulers of the Deccan in a feudal obsession which bankrupted and weakened the empire, leading to its eventual fall. The ruling Bharatiya Janata Party and its mentor, the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Singh, of course, speak of a thousand years of foreign rule in India. According to the Hindutva view of history, Aurangzeb is only an archetype of the Muslim ruler who oppressed Hindus over this millennium. It is important to remember that their dislike is not limited to Aurangzeb. A few years back, Akbar was sought to be portrayed as a Muslim invader who was resisted by the brave, but ultimately tragic, Maharana Pratap. But Aurangzeb is viewed as a bad Mughal even by those who do not share the Hindutva worldview. As was illustrated by the triumphant tweet by the populist chief minister of Delhi, Arvind Kejriwal, who was the first to announce the decision to rename Aurangzeb Road. Aurangzeb's Last Battle, Economic and Political Weekly, September 5, 2015. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion on the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-11, Aurangzeb's Demise. Okay, let's do a very quick recap of the previous episode. During the 1660s and 1670s, the Mughal Empire had to deal with several revolts. There was the Afghan Revolt, which mostly took place in what is now the border region between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Then there was the Revolt of the Jats and Satnamis. Aurangzeb's campaign in the Deccan allowed these various rebellions to last longer than they should have, and so they were not put down until the late 1680s. However, another more serious revolt was the Rajput Revolt. The Rajput kingdoms of Mewar and Marwar rose up in rebellion against the Mughals. The rebellion began in 1679 and ended with the Treaty of Udaipur in 1681. In 1685, Aurangzeb began the process of completing the conquest of the Deccan, and by 1688, the last remaining Deccan sultanates of Bijapur and Golconda had finally been conquered. So with those two out of the way, Bijapur and Golconda, Aurangzeb now decided to focus on the Hindu Marathas, who continued to be a nuisance to the Mughals in the Deccan. The Mughals eventually captured and killed the Maratha king, Sambhaji, who was the son of Shivaji, in 1689. 
The Mughals then went on to invade the Maratha capital of Raigar and capture Sambhaji's son, Shivaji II, who was only seven years old at the time. And even though the boy king's uncle, Raja Rama, continued to lead a guerrilla resistance against the Mughals, Aurangzeb finally felt that he had subdued the Deccan once and for all. The Mughals also went on to defeat an attempted English invasion through the EIC, an English invasion of Bangladesh, further confirming Aurangzeb's power and authority. But as we will see, things aren't quite as secure as they may seem. The Sikh Revolt Once upon a time, the Mughals and the Sikhs had good relations with each other. But all of this changed when Guru Arjan Das, the, the Sikh Guru Arjan Das, was killed during the reign of Jahangir. Guru Arjan Das had supported Prince Khusro during his rebellion against his father, and we discussed this back in episode 9-3. Guru Arjan Das's successor, Guru Hargobind, began to militarize the Sikhs. Eventually, Guru Hargobind died as a fugitive in the Siwalik Hills in 1645. This was discussed in episode 9-6. His successor, Hargobind's successor, was Guru Har Rai. Now, Guru Har Rai had better luck despite the fact that he had supported Dara in the fratricidal war. See, after the war ended, after the fratricidal war between Aurangzeb and Dara Shiko ended, Guru Har, Har Rai gave his son as a hostage to Aurangzeb, and that allowed him to be spared from any retaliation from the Mughals. And so at this point, it seemed that the relationship or the relations between the Mughals and the Sikhs was starting to improve. Aurangzeb even got involved in the Sikh community and political process by selecting Guru Har Rai's successor after his death in 1661. The Sikhs elected a new guru named Har Krishan, and Aurangzeb gave this new guru land in Dehradun, which is located in the modern Indian state of Uttarakhand in the Himalayan foothills. When Guru Har Krishan died, the Sikhs then selected Teg Bahadur as their ninth guru. Guru Teg Bahadur, he toured the country, proselytizing or preaching to Muslims and Hindus alike. And the common story is that the Mughals were upset about this. They were alarmed by him preaching to Muslims and Hindus, and they ordered him arrested. Then he was tortured for months and publicly executed on November 11, 1674 in Delhi. Now, there's no doubt that the Mughals executed him. That most certainly did happen. Is the reason for his execution where the differences lie. There are several reasons for his given for his execution depending on the source. According to the Sikhs, after he was arrested, Guru Teg Bahadur was given the choice to convert to Islam, but when he refused, he was tortured and executed. There's also an alternate reason given for Guru Teg Bahadur's execution. There is a story that he and another man named Hafiz Adam were looked up as men, were looked up to as men of authority, men of spiritual uh, superiority and that they were accused or suspected of coercing and extorting money from the people who came under their influence, kind of like the, the cultish spiritual gurus that you hear of today. 
and that this was why he was arrested and executed by the Mughals, Allah knows best what the actual reason was for his execution. After Tegh Bahadur's execution, his son Govind Singh became the 10th guru of the Sikhs. Now, under Govind Singh's leadership, the Sikhs went through a radical transformation. Govind Singh began to name his disciples the Khalsa, which means the pure, and he taught them to fight for Sikhism. He introduced the five Ks, which are the outward signs of Sikhism. These five Ks are the Kara, which means iron bangle, the Kacha, which means uh, shorts or underwear, the Kes, which means uncut long hair, the Kanga, which is the comb to hold the hair, and the Kirpan, the short sword or dagger. Then he gave all Sikh men the title Sink, which means lion, and he also prohibited the use of tobacco and alcohol. Guru Govind Singh, he led the Sikhs into battle against the Mughals and against nearby Hindu kingdoms as well. He fought 13 major conflicts between the years of 1681 and 1705. Now, the Mughals, being led by Aurangzeb, they were distracted by what was going on in the Deccan. We mentioned that before, and we're going to get back to the Deccan in a few minutes, inshallah. But the Mughals were distracted by by the Deccan and their campaign in the Deccan. And this allowed the Sikh guerrillas to wage this extensive war against the Mughals and their allies, both their Muslim and their Hindu allies. And this fighting that the Sikhs were doing during this period between 1681 and 1705, while the, the main Mughal army and Aurangzeb himself were bogged down in the Deccan, all of this fighting that the Sikhs were doing allowed them to improve their military skills. And this became very valuable for the Sikhs when they established their own kingdom a few generations later. This would come into play again many years later when the Sikhs became the elite troopers during the British era and also in the modern Indian army. All of Guru Govind Singh's children were killed in battle shows you how much of a warrior he was. And he wrote a defiant letter in Persian, by the way, called the Zafarnama, which means the Epistle of Victory. He wrote this defiant letter, the Zafarnama, to Aurangzeb, and this letter became an important part of the Sikh tradition towards the end of the 19th century. The Zafarnama, this letter to Aurangzeb, was very stern, but it was also conciliatory. Now, it reprimanded Aurangzeb and his commanders on spiritual and moral grounds, but it also predicted the end of the Mughal Empire because of its persecutions, its abuses, its falsehoods, and its immorality. Honestly, as we've seen so far, many of these accusations are true. The, the Mughals did some bad things to a lot of people, both not just Hindus, not just Sikhs, but also Muslims. These are things that happen when you have a large empire. Large empires aren't built through kindness. They're built through violence most of the time, pretty much all the time. That's just the way life works. Anyway, neither here nor there. The point of the matter is that he had a lot of things to say about Aurangzeb. Guru Govind Singh, he was invited to the Mughal court in 1707 as a gesture of peace to try to mend the relationship, but by the time he arrived, Aurangzeb had already passed away, he had already died, and this gesture of peace never went much further than that. The Maratha Deccan Quagmire 
So everything seemed to be going Aurangzeb's way in the Deccan. It seemed as if Aurangzeb had succeeded, finally succeeded in firmly establishing Mughal authority in the Deccan. After all, the Deccan Sultanates had been conquered, as we mentioned in the introduction. The Maratha rebels had seemingly been defeated. Sambaji was dead. His son was now, I don't want to call him a hostage, but he's pretty much a hostage or a prisoner of the Mughals. Uh, the, the young boy was given a useless title of Raja and given a rank of 7,000, but this was just a wrongzeb's way of trying to maybe smooth things over, but it was also meant to keep the Marathas hopefully hopefully um, under control, but obviously that didn't work as we shall soon see. But this was really only the beginning of a 25-year-long slog that would absorb the rest of Aurangzeb's life. Now, Raja Ram, he was Shivaji's second son. Shivaji was the essentially the founder of the Maratha kingdom, the man who had joined the Mughals, then betrayed the Mughals, joined the Deccan Sultanates, betrayed the Deccan Sultanates. We spoke about him in earlier episodes. So one of his sons was Raja Ram. Raja Ram was also the uncle and the former regent of the boy king who, was, who had been captured by the Mughals and now living under the Mughal care. Raja Ram had not been captured. He was still on the loose and still evading the Mughals. He declared himself king and escaped with the remnants of the Maratha forces. As we mentioned, the, the Mughals had invaded the Maratha capital, Raigar, captured the young boy king, and Raja Ram and the remaining Maratha forces managed to escape. They made their headquarters at a fort called Jinji in southern India, but they were eventually driven out by a very brutal and torturous five-year Mughal siege. The Mughals put them under, under siege for five years. They were driven out, but Raja Ram again survived. He continued to fight the Mughals. Now, his fighting was more of a guerrilla-type war, but it, as we'll soon see, it was effective in one way. But we'll see that. We'll get to that in a moment, inshallah. Raja Ram continued to lead the Marathas in raids against the Mughal Empire, but the Marathas were no longer a unified force at this time. With Raja Ram constantly on the run, with their previous king, uh, Shambhaji, having been executed, with the boy king, Shambhaji's son, now under the authority of the Mughals, the Marathas split into several different factions. They no longer had any central authority. Now, you might think this would make things more difficult for them, but in actuality, while it didn't make it more difficult for the Marathas to coordinate their efforts, it made it even more difficult for the Mughals to try to fight them because now the Mughals weren't just fighting one army, they were fighting a bunch of tiny armies. And things got very difficult for the Mughals, as we shall soon see. In 1699, Aurangzeb decided to take charge of the campaign to destroy all the various Maratha fortresses throughout the uh, southern part of India. As you mentioned in previous episode, Aurangzeb, when it came to warfare, could be a very hands-on kind of guy. He really, he really liked taking control of the military function sometimes. Nonetheless, Aurangzeb took charge of this campaign, but this campaign would take significant time. It would take a lot of time and a lot of money in order to accomplish this. You got to understand, the Mughal army was humongous. If you, even in to, by today's standards, 
this would be considered a large army. They had 150,000 soldiers. This is what Arongza brought to bear against the various little Maratha bands that were harassing the Mughals. Now, in addition to the 100, 150,000 soldiers, there were perhaps another 200,000 camp followers. We mentioned camp followers in many, many episodes throughout the history of the Islamic History Podcast. These are basically the people who provided services, both licit and illicit services, to the various soldiers within the army. It's like merchants, tailors, uh, people selling small things, selling things to the, different, to the soldiers on campaign, but also some illicit things, people selling alcohol, and as well as prostitutes, gambling houses, things like that. Those are the things that followed these soldiers as they went from battle to battle to battle. This is just part of the economy of things back then. It's not so much a thing now any longer, but back then when large land armies were a thing, there were almost always camp followers who followed the army as it went on campaign to provide services for the army. So now you have this huge, I don't know, like city practically, this moving city of 150,000 soldiers, 200,000 camp followers trekking through the dense forests of southern India. That's 350,000 people going through the dense forests of southern India. To put this into perspective, the city of Atlanta, where I live, is roughly 400,000 people, maybe a little bit more than that, a little bit less than half a million, just the city itself, not the uh, metro area, just about 100,000 less than the city of Atlanta. That's a lot of people. So Arongzeb's army, Arongzeb, his plan was to find a Maratha fortress where the Marathas were holed up at and deep into these, in, this, in these forests and then besiege the fortress. Now, many of these fortresses were militarily insignificant, but Aurangzeb wanted to wipe out each and every single one of them if he could. His plan was to destroy as many Maratha fortresses as possible, and he was, as we've seen in the past, Aurangzeb could be kind of stubborn. I think we've kind of established that characteristic of him. Aurangzeb could be kind of stubborn, and he stuck to this plan even though it was proving to be futile. He was the emperor, and he was on campaign, and he believed himself to be the ultimate warrior, and so the people had to follow him. So he stuck to this plan. He would go and besiege a fortress, a Maratha-controlled fortress. The Marathas would hold off as long as possible against the Mughal siege, and then they would slip quietly away into the forest when they couldn't take it any longer. So the Mughals would then move in and conquer the fortress. Arongza would rack it up as a victory, and then they would move on to the next one. But as soon as the Mughals were gone, the Marathas would come right back behind them and reoccupy the same fortress that the Mughals had just destroyed. And throughout this process, of course, when the Mughals besieged one of these fortresses located in the middle of these dense forests in southern India, they would, of course, devastate and lay waste to the land all around that fortress. Let me read you this excerpt about this process that Arongzeb and the Mughals were going through at this time. Arongzeb positioned strong defensive forces at a number of strategic points in the Mughal Deccan to fend off Maratha raids. For the next four years, he sent two or more field armies into the Maratha kingdom every year. One after the other, his commanders found that they could maneuver freely, plunder and burn villages and towns and return. He could discourage large-scale Maratha raiding in the Mughal Deccan by keeping sizable armies in the field. 
but total conquest of the Maratha kingdom demanded a much greater commitment of imperial resources and determination than Aurangzeb had previously thought necessary. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire So Aurangzeb was bringing this huge army, 150,000 soldiers plus all the camp followers, through these dense forests. Meanwhile, the Marathas were mobile because they were not under a central authority any longer. They were all just a bunch of individual bands. The Marathas were mobile. They were bold. They were audacious. They attacked Hyderabad in 1702 and 1704. They attacked cities far away from their, their homeland in southern India. They, they attacked as far away as Bengal. They even plundered and attacked caravans less than 50 miles from Aurangzeb's camp. That shows you how bold and how daring the Marathas could be. Again, going to read you something else from John F. Richards. Aurangzeb personally led his weary army into the field after each rainy season and commanded most of the sieges himself. In most instances, the emperor resorted to bribery to persuade the Maratha commanders to surrender on terms. Large Maratha armies hovered, harassed, and sometimes defeated Mughal cavalry beyond the imperial lines. They were never sufficiently strong to defeat the Mughal Grand Army in a fixed battle or to drive off Aurangzeb's besieging forces. Aurangzeb took heavy losses in men and animals every year from battle casualties and disease. He drafted levies of troops from provincial governors around the empire, called for drafts of horses from Kabul and Surat, and received regular shipments of treasure from the north. So as we can see, this fighting that Aurangzeb was doing in the Deccan was draining his, his empire of men, of animals, of energy, but also of treasure. Another issue with this stubborn campaign, I don't know how else to put it, the stubborn campaign that Aurangzeb was doing was the Mughal commanders. The Mughal army was just full of corruption and had a very tangled bureaucracy. And many of the commanders, remember, this is a large army. So even if most of the commanders were uh, honest people, there was there were going to be a significant number who were also corrupt. Many of them accepted bribes from the Marathas. There were some Mughal officers who preferred to pay the Marathas not to attack instead of going out to fight them. There's also some reports that some of these Mughal commanders, some of these Mughal military officers even colluded with the Marathas in their raids. Finally, for some reason, in 1705, Aurangzeb declared victory over the Marathas. But this wasn't really true. I think perhaps he just declared victory because he was tired and he was sick. This wasn't really true because the Marathas were very much active in southern India. And as his army headed back north, the Marathas continued to harass them the whole way. So obviously they were not defeated. Yes, Aurangzeb and the Mughals had destroyed several dozens of Maratha fortresses. Yes, they had killed perhaps hundreds, even thousands of Maratha warriors. They had destroyed acres upon acres of Maratha land, but the Marathas were still fighting them. So they were not defeated. In one book that I read, the author compared the Marathas to the Afghan Mujahideen during the Soviet-Afghan War. Not obviously in their religion, but in their tenacity and in their style of fighting. The Soviet Union 
during that war was the giant behemoth. It was this huge military force that was full of corruption, full of corrupt officials, that was so big it couldn't get out of its own way. It kept tripping over itself, even though it had all this military might and it could it could lay a lot of damage and pain on the Afghans. It was just too big to really deal with its enemy. Whereas the Mujahideen were mobile. They were bold. They had to take chances because that's all they had. They didn't, they couldn't defeat the Soviets in one-on-one battles because they did they had inferior weaponry up until later in the war. They generally had inferior weaponry, so they had to take bold chances and and fight them using surprise attacks. In that regard, in their military tactics, that's how this author compared the uh, Marathas to the Mujahideen and the Mughals of this time to the Soviets during that war. Aurangzeb's death. So as I mentioned, in 1705, Aurangzeb declared victory over the Marathas and started heading north. But... By this time, he was about 87 years old. He had actually fell sick. He fell very, very ill while campaigning in the Deccan near Devonpur. This was around the time that he decided to claim victory over the Marathas of the Deccan. Aurangzeb, at 87 years old, he was an old man. He was very weak. He was very frail. And his condition continued to worsen, and he decided to move further north. That's when he, and I, that's in my opinion, that's what led him to declare victory over the Marathas. He was just physically unable to keep up this pace. In January 1706, he reached Ahmadnagar, which coincidentally, ironically perhaps, this is where he started this endless Deccan campaign that had drained his empire's resources for nearly a quarter of a century. And he remained there until he died on February 20th, 1707. Emperor Aurangzeb died after praying Salat al-Fajr, which is the early morning prayer. And according to the story, this was his long-standing wish. He wanted to die on a Friday, and this was finally fulfilled. Perhaps you might think I have a negative view of Aurangzeb, and that's not necessarily true. I do respect his devotion to Islam. I kind of question, not kind of, I do question his devotion to conquering the Deccan, however. I do question some of his military tactics and his stubbornness, but his devotion to Islam is, I won't say unquestioned, but it was definitely evident. His devotion to Islam was evident. I do also question the way he treated some of his family, his overthrow of his father, the way he didn't show mercy to Dadashiko. These are things that, as a Muslim, perhaps he should have uh, considered those things. Did he have to have his brother killed in prison? He already had him in prison. Did he have to kill Dadashiko? Could he not have shown him some mercy? That's another part of Islam also, is, is mercy. So, it's my opinion. I, I think he made some political mistakes, of course. He was way too lenient on, on Shivaji. And also, I think he should have, uh, when he had the chance to really limit the EIC's access into India, he had a chance to really limit them, he let them back in. And as we'll soon see, the English learned from their mistakes, and they didn't make that mistake a second time. We're going to see that in a moment, inshallah. So that's my gripe with Aurangzeb. I don't want you to think that I just don't like Aurangzeb. Not at all. I'm just looking at this from 
a guy who read the history, and this is my opinion upon some of the mistakes that he made. I really don't think as the emperor he should have necessarily been leading all of these all of these campaigns himself. He should have appointed competent generals and dealt with the politics and the and the actual managing of this huge empire he had from the capital in Delhi or Agra or wherever he wanted that to be. So those are the things that I disagree with uh, Arong said. But I, I do admire his devotion to Islam. So despite the Mughal Empire's vast wealth, Aurangzeb lived a very simple life, which stands in stark contrast to the emperors that came before him. Shah Jahan, Jahangir, Akbar, all these guys lived very fabulous, wealthy lives. And they you knew that they were the emperor when they came through. But Aurangzeb led a very simple life. He died with very few possessions. Now, he earned some money, some, some reports say four and a half rupees from selling. He literally sold caps that he's sewn by hand. These are Tajas, Topis, Kufis, various different names, little caps that Muslim men sometimes wear on their heads. He sold he sold these, he, he made these, crocheted them, knitted them, and then sold them for money. And this is how he, he earned his money, even though he was the emperor. And he left instructions for, for the income from selling these caps to be used for his funeral expenses. He, al- he also has some Qur'ans that he had written out by hand. He had written out entire entire copies of the Quran by hand, and he sold these for roughly 305 rupees. This money he ordered for this to be distributed amongst the scholars. One other thing about Arongs I want to mention that I've learned after reading some of these history books about the Mughals, despite his, for lack of a better phrase, desire to lead military campaigns, he was actually the least violent of all the Mughal emperors. You might think that because he led so many military campaigns that he was a bloodthirsty tyrant. He was not. Some of these emperors, some of these Mughal emperors, they would kill people for the slightest offense. There's a story in the Jahangirnama where a man had been treated nicely and kindly by Jahangir. The man later on began spreading stories that were mocking or insulting of Jahangir. Jahangir found out brought the man before him, and had him executed for that. Now, this is what Jahangir admitted in his own autobiography that he wrote, his memoir, so to speak. He wrote this. He had this man executing. It was just a byline. He just mentioned it and kept on moving with the rest of his story like it, like it meant nothing. This is also the guy Jahangir also had his own son's eyes sewn shut. My point of, of saying all this is that the... Previous emperors were much more sadistic. They, they killed many more people. But think about Aurangzeb, even though he fought a lot of wars and people did die during the battle, he was not a, an indiscriminate murderer like some of the previous emperors before him. This is something that a lot of the Orientalists struggle with because they, they say so many, things, so many bad things about Aurangzeb, about how he's such a bigot and he hated Hindus. And we're going to talk about that soon, inshallah. But they have to admit that the truth of the matter is he was not as violent as the other emperors that they love so much, even Akbar. Emperor Akbar killed a lot of people. I mean, not just in campaigns. And I mean, we mentioned it before in the previous season. We talked about how at the, the fort of Chitor, how Akbar had, had hundreds of uh, Rajputs killed 
and not just the, the soldiers who were fighting who were fighting against him, but also the women and children. He had hundreds of them killed because he got angry. So yeah, I'm just saying that Aurangzeb, despite his flaws, we can also see his Islamic character shining through if we look deeper. So I'm just trying to give a more nuanced view of this person and all the all these uh, Mughal emperors in general. All right, I think I spent a lot of time on this. So just wrapping up um, Aurangzeb's death. As he was nearing death, he had requested a plain and simple grave without a roof, and he was eventually buried at Kuldabad near Dolatabad. And the names of these places have been pointed out to be kind of ironic. Kuldabad means abode of the graves, and Dolatabad means abode of wealth. Interesting. At the time of Emperor Aurangzeb's death, the Mughal Empire had reached its, its maximum extent. The Mughal Empire had reached its maximum extent and encompassed almost all of present-day Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. There's only a small area in southern India that was outside of the Mughal domains. Now we're going to talk about Aurangzeb's legacy. So his legacy is probably the most debated one of all. People have so much things to say about Aurangzeb, perhaps because he's closest to our time, but there's a lot to say about him. I have a lot to say about him. So we know, you know, I, I spent uh, so far four episodes on Aurangzeb, and there'll probably be one more when we talk about him, his jizya, in the next episode, inshallah. But Aurangzeb is a very controversial figure amongst historians. He is, of course, disliked by Hindus and Orientalists and some Muslims even though I'm hoping that people take a more holistic view of him in many, many ways. But he's also admired by many Muslims, and I also hope Muslims take a more holistic view of him in many, many ways. This sentiment is almost the exact opposite of Aurangzeb's great-grandfather, Akbar. The main problem that his detractors have with Aurangzeb is that he is accused of being this ultra-religious fanatic emperor. To me, this is really just anti-Muslim bias, but the fact of the matter is he was a complex ruler living in very tumultuous times. I can't tell you how many times I've read the words Aurangzeb and bigot in the same sentence, even though, once again, the emperors who came before him probably killed more Hindus than Aurangzeb did. Aurangzeb really only fought against those who fought against him. In my opinion, this is my opinion, Aurangzeb was not a bigot against Hindus. Many of his top generals and many of the officials within his empire were Hindu. So how is he going to be a bigot against Hindus if he have some of his most trusted commanders and officials and advisors as Hindus? He had even appointed the Hindu Raja Jaswan Singh as the commander in a mostly Muslim province. And he used Hindu generals to fight against Muslim kings. He had Hindu generals in his fight against the uh, Deccan Sultanates. This accusation that he was a bigot is, in my opinion, misapplied. Now, he is also accused of destroying many Hindu temples. And that is true. He did destroy several Hindu temples, but his father, Shah Jahan, destroyed many more than he did. But no one ever considers uh, Shah Jahan as a bigot. You'll rarely see those two words put together. The thing is that the Marathas wanted to reestablish Hindu rule over India, 
And in order to do that, they had to overthrow the Mughals. So what do you expect a Rongzeb to do? To just roll over and let him do it? No, he's going to fight them. He's going to fight them with everything he has. Now, we can disagree about his method of fighting. I don't think he should have been leading the campaigns himself. I think it should have been uh, t- perhaps taking a different, a different method of fighting against the Marathas. But he was completely justified in defending his empire against, against uh, rebels. He has, that's what he had to do. So he was not fighting the Marathas because they were Hindu. He was fighting the Marathas because they were rebels. That's why he was fighting them. So that's the thing where I'm saying that he wasn't a bigot, in my opinion. I don't think he was a bigot. He was simply fighting against rebels. Had the Marathas laid down their arms, submitted quietly, or just stopped trying to raid Mughal territory, he wouldn't have fought them. Now, he he may have still tried to conquer the territory, but that's a different story. There's another accusation against him was the fact that he reinstated the jizya on non-Muslims in the Mughal Empire in 1679. This took place after Aurangzeb had been ruling for 21 years. He established the jizya in 1679. He died, as we mentioned, in 1707. That means for 21 years, there was no jizya. For 27 years, there was a jizya. So nearly half of his reign, there was a jizya. A little bit, a little bit more than half of his reign contained the, jiz, the jizya. In my opinion, that doesn't show bigotry. Now, why did he imply, uh, impose the jizya? We're going to get into that more in the next episode, inshallah. But there's some discussion that this decision was pressured upon him, was influenced from pressure from the leading Islamic scholars in the empire. Another thing is that Aurangzeb had actually canceled several other taxes. Nobody ever talks about that. No one ever mentions that Aurangzeb, he had canceled several taxes that had been imposed by his father and his grandfather that he believed were un-Islamic. And so he canceled those taxes, which decreased the revenue for the Mughal Empire. And so to try to make up for that, he went and um, imposed the jizya to try to make up for that. And he also needed extra income to fund his prolonged war in the Deccan. So there is an argument to be made that Aurangzeb's imposition of the jizya was a political thing that he had to do and not necessarily bigotry against the Hindus. Now, there was also some exceptions to that. The jizya was not applied to Hindus who were working for him. Those Hindus who were working for the Mughal Empire, his generals, his advisors, his commanders, his governors who happened to be Hindu, they didn't have to pay jizya. And even when the jizya was applied, it was only applied on those people who had a certain income level. So it wasn't applied to the poor and the needy and those who couldn't afford it, of course. So the financial situation of the people who were being taxed for jizya was always taken into consideration. Also, the jizya was not collected regularly. It was ve- actually very irregular. There was It wasn't really fully fleshed out. They didn't have a whole bureaucracy set to efficiently and properly collect the jizya from all non-Muslims throughout the empire. That might have been impossible anyway, considering how many people lived there and how big the empire was. But still, the fact of the matter was that it was not regularly collected. So there were several years where people, the jizya should have been collected, but was not. And even when the jizya was collected, it did not go into Aurangzeb's pocket. It was given away mostly as charity. It was used to, to help those in need within the empire. In fact, he was 
asked if he could remove the non-Muslims, all of these Hindus that I mentioned who, who were his generals and advisors and government officials, he was asked if he could move them from the service of the Mughal Empire. And he replied, quote, religion has no concern with secular business and in matters of this kind, bigotry has no place, unquote. And then he went on to quote the famous verse from the Quran, Lakum dinukum maliyadin, to you is your religion and to me is my religion. I'm going to leave this here for now and we'll discuss the jizya issue in more detail in the next episode, inshallah. The Contenders As Aurangzeb lay there dying in Ahmadnagar, he was worried about the inevitable fratricidal civil war that was going to come after he died. This same fratricidal war had followed the deaths of Jahangir and Shah Jahan before Aurangzeb, and Aurangzeb himself, he didn't even wait for his father to die before he launched a civil war. So he knew what was going to happen as soon as he breathed his last breath. Now, Aurangzeb may have been tormented by his past deeds, the way he treated his brother, Dadashiko, the way he treated his own father, basically putting his father under house arrest for, for eight years, for the last eight years of his life. Aurangzeb did everything he could to prevent the civil war that was pretty much inevitable. His method of trying to prevent the fratricidal civil war was to create distance between his sons and send them as far away from each other as possible. I don't know why he thought this was going to stop a civil war, but that's what that was his idea. To me, the best way to stop a civil war, or at least hopefully ameliorate it, is kind of what some of the Arab empires did, the Umayyads and I know the Umayyads did it. I don't know if the Abbasids did it as much. Was that before you died, before the king or the emperor or caliph or whatever died, gather the sons together, choose the one who you want to succeed you, and have everyone in there pledge allegiance to him and for there to be witnesses and all for, all for all the generals and governors and all everybody else to pledge allegiance to the guy you want to be, the next king, emperor, caliph, whatever, and then have everyone pledge allegiance to him, have all the witnesses. But I believe this would have been a better way to prevent uh, these fratricidal civil wars than just sending people to different parts of the empire. That's not going to work. But that's what they did. That's what he did. That's what Rongzeb tried to do. Let's go through his sons, the main contenders for the Mughal throne. His eldest son, whose name was Muazzam, also known as Shah Alam, which means king of the world, he was the governor of Kabul, all the way on the western edge of the empire. His second oldest son was Muhammad Azam, also known as Azam Shah. He served as the governor of Gujarat. His capital, which was Ahmadabad, was the closest one to Ahmadagar, which is where Aurangzeb was when he was about to die. Aurangzeb sent his youngest son, a man, young man named Kam Baksh, he sent him south to Bijapur to separate him from his brother Muazzam as there was open animosity between this, these two. The youngest son, Kambaksh, had a serious problem with his oldest son, Muazzam. Aurangzeb also pointed his grandsons to various important posts, hoping to spread them out throughout the empire and prevent them from going to war with each other. One of his grandsons, named was Marizuddin, he was the son of Muazzam. Muazzam was Aurangzeb's oldest son. Marizuddin was the governor of Sindh and Multan. Another one of Muazzam's sons was Azim. Azim was the governor of Bengal, although on the eastern region of the empire. Muhammad Azam, that's the second oldest, 
he convinced his father, Arangzeb, to recall his grandson, Azim, that is the son of Muazzam, the oldest son, from Bengal, and bring him to Gujarat. Muhammad Azam, he was hoping to deprive Muazzam from the, the, the riches of Bengal when the war eventually came. Bengal was the wealthiest province of the Mughal Empire. So Muhammad Azam, he convinced his father, Aurangzeb, as he was dying, to recall Azim from Bengal, send him, send him to Gujarat in the hopes that his competitor, his older brother, Muazzam, wouldn't get access to the money coming from Bengal. So with Azim, Aurangzeb's grandson, being removed from Bengal and being sent to Gujarat, that meant that Muhammad Azam had to get another territory. Aurangzeb appointed Muhammad Azam, his second oldest son, as the governor of Malwa. Muhammad Azam now had to travel. And on his way to Malwa, he first stopped at Ahmednagar where his father was dying, spent some time with him, and then he made his way on to Malwa. But as he was moving on to Malwa, he moved very, very slowly, and he made sure to remain well informed of the emperor's health, of his father's health. So when his father finally died, Muhammad Azam was only 40 miles away. This is exactly what he had planned. So he quickly turned back and reached Ahmadagar the very next day and prepared to perform Aurangzeb's burial rites. Now, of course, we're going to get back into the actual fighting between all of these sons. That is definitely going to happen. That's going to take some time, inshallah. One more thing about these three contenders. Their mothers actually played a significant role in Mughal court politics. Much of this fighting between the sons was actually egged on by the mothers. The three contenders of the throne were all the sons of different wives of Aurangzeb. Muhammad Azam was the son of a woman named Dilrasbano. Dilrasbano was the daughter of Shah Nawaz Khan, who was one of the senior ministers under Emperor Shah Jahan. Muhammad Azam was also supported by the Prime Minister Asad Khan, as well as Zinatonisa, who was Aurangzeb's only surviving daughter, and she was also Muhammad Azam's full sister. They had the same mother and father. Muazzam Shah, that's the other major contender for the throne that was Aurangzeb's oldest son, his mother was Nawab Bibi. She was the daughter of Raja Raju, who was a, who was a local prince from Jammu. And finally, the third son, Kambaksh, he had the weakest claim of all the brothers. His mother, her name was Udaypuri Begum, she was most likely a concubine of Dada Shiko and then came to Aurangzeb's harem after Dada was defeated and killed. Now, she has been described as being maybe from Kashmir. Others say that she was from, uh, she was Circassian. Others say that she was Georgian. Allah knows best. The point is that Rongzeb left this will, dividing his empire amongst his sons, hoping to prevent bloodshed. But the thing is that each one of these sons wanted full control of the empire, and they were going to fight for it. The Beginning of the Decline The Mughal Empire's decline is often pegged to have started after Aurangzeb died. But the truth is that it was already starting to falter even during his reign. We've already discussed the many rebellions that Aurangzeb had to fight throughout his, his entire reign. These included the Afghans, the Jats, the Satanamis, the Rajputs, the Sikhs, and the Marathas. 
as far as the Afghans are concerned. He fought the Pashtun Afghans in 1667 when they invaded Hazara. Aurangzeb eventually reestablished control in 1675, but the Mughals continued fighting the Afghan rebel Kushal Khan all the way up until 1687. The Jats and the Satanamis, the Jats rebelled in 1669 and again in 1681, and they weren't subdued until 1688. The Satanamis revolted in 1672, they were defeated within a year, it wasn't really a major thing, but it is just another sign of the rebellions that were happening in the Mughal Empire. Then there were the Rajputs. They took advantage of the fratricidal war. Jaswan Singh, the Rana of Mawar, we talked about how he kept switching sides between Darashiko and Arangzeb. The Rajputs of Mawar and Marwar, we discussed this earlier in the episode, how they revolted against the Mughals in 1679. They were finally subdued in 1681, but some Rajputs continued to fight a guerrilla war against the Mughals. And then there were the Sikhs, who had been at odds with the Mughals ever since Guru Arjan Singh's execution in 1606, and then Teg Bahadur, who was executed in 1674. The, the Sikhs revolted in 1681, and this conflict between the Sikhs and the Mughals would continue off and on for about another hundred years. But the most devastating conflicts, the most draining conflicts for the Mughal Empire were the ones taking place in the Deccan. But the most devastating conflicts, the most draining and, and destructive campaigns for the Mughals were those taking place in the Deccan. First, there was the defeat and conquest of the mostly Shia Deccan Sultanates. But the Marathas, that was a, another big issue. And these, these guys proved to be much more difficult for Aurangzeb to subdue. The Mughals had to deal with various Effective Maratha warrior kings, Shahaji, Shivaji, Shambhaji was not that effective, but Rajaram, all of these guys were excellent and effective guerrilla leaders, and they would sign treaties with the Mughals and break them later. And even after the Maratha split into a bunch of different factions, they were still able to effectively resist and harass the Mughals, and this ultimately helped deplete the empire's treasury, contributing to its downfall. Another problem with the Mughals was that the EIC was losing respect for them as well. The East India Company, we're back to them guys. With the Mughal authority weakening, the EIC began to exercise more independence and disdain for the Mughal authority, for the Mughal government. An example of this comes in 1701 when Daoud Khan Pani, the Mughal governor of Karnatik, was upset and he was frustrated with the disrespect that the local EIC officials were giving to him. Karnatik is the coastal region between the Bay of Bengal and the Eastern Ghats and it ranges from Andhra Pradesh to Tamil Nadu. Dawood Khan Pani believed that the EIC, their officials, should be giving him more courtesy since they were getting rich off of his land and he was ruling this land on behalf of the Mughals. This was a region that had previously belonged to the Golconda Sultanate, but was now part of the Mughal Empire after the fall and the conquest of Golconda. He was also angry that the EIC was not paying all of their taxes, so he threatened them to impose more effective measures of tax collection. Well, the EIC had a guy named Niccolo Manucci, who was a Venetian doctor and an explorer. He was living in Madras. He represented the EIC before the Mughal court. He basically brushed off Dawood Khan's threats and his complaints. He responded to Dawood Khan Pani's threats 
by stating that the EIC had turned Madras into a prosperous port city. If he tried to raise taxes on them, Manucci said that if Dawood Khan tried to raise taxes on them or tried to extort more taxes from them, they would simply pull up stakes and move to another location. And when the EIC did this, this would devastate the local merchants, all of these local merchants who depended on the business that the EIC brought into Madras. And this would in turn deplete and, re and ruin the tax revenues that the Mughal administration could get from those local merchants. With this threat from the EIC to the Mughals, Dawood Khan stopped complaining about the EIC and he withdrew his threats. Here's another quote that further illustrates the weakening of the Mughal Empire. Nine years later, the EIC went much further. In response to the seizure of two Englishmen and a short siege by the Mughal Kiladar, fort keeper of Jinji, the factors of Fort St. David, a little to the south of Madras, took up arms. In 1710, they rode out of their fortifications near Kudalor, broke through Mughal lines, and laid waste of 52 towns and villages along the Coromandel coast, killing innocent villagers and destroying fields of crops containing thousands of pagodas of rice awaiting harvest, which, the governor of Madras proudly reported, exasperated the enemy beyond reconciliation. This was perhaps the first major act of violence by Englishmen against the ordinary people of India. It was two years before the IC was reconciled with the local Mughal government through the friendly mediation of the French governor of Pondicherry. The directors in London approved of the measures taken. The natives there and elsewhere in India who have or shall hear of it will have a due impression made upon their minds of the English courage and conduct and know that we were able to maintain a war against even so potent a prince. William Dalrymple, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company. Now remember in the previous episode how the Mughal Empire completely mopped the floor with the English. Now here we are in 1710 and the English, the EIC are able to just rampage through Mughal territory, killing innocent people, burning down villages, and there's nothing the Mughals can do about them. They tried, but they were completely defeated. The tide was beginning to turn. And this is one of my complaints against Aurangzeb. He let the Marathas and the English stick around too long. When he had the chance to wipe them out or at least hinder their ability to effectively oppose him, he did not take that chance. That's my gripe with Aurangzeb. Here's another quote. Mughal failure to seize Bombay and Madras was a direct result of Aurangzeb's overwhelming preoccupation with the Maratha problem. The emperor was unwilling and increasingly unable to bring sufficient military weight to bear to occupy these ports. After Aurangzeb's death, none of his immediate successors was prepared to pursue the matter. Bombay and Madras continued to flourish as autonomous trading centers in the years that Surat and Machili Patnam were in decline. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire In the next episode, inshallah, we will discuss Aurangzeb's jizya, and we are going to see just how much of an impact it had on the Mughal Empire.
You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Saroj for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Now there are lots of stories describing the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan. But let me just give you some background to the people who would make up the Taliban. Many of the members of the Taliban were born or grew up in the refugee camps in Pakistan. Most of them knew very little about Afghanistan before the war. All they knew really were the refugee camps in Pakistan and the torn up country they returned to after the Soviets left. However, they were madrasa students. They had gone to madrasas, to schools to study Islam in Pakistan, and so they had grown up together. They had studied together. And many of these young men who had been too young to participate in the jihad against the Soviet Union, they looked up to an older man who was also a student of knowledge, whose name was Muhammad Omar. Muhammad Omar, he had participated in the jihad against the Soviet Union. He had lost an eye during this fighting. He had also studied Islam in Afghanistan. And so these students who were, well, former students, really, because they were finished their Islamic studies. These former students were now living in Kandahar, and they would often gather with their mentor, Muhammad Omar, to discuss the horrible situation in Afghanistan. One day... During one of these gatherings, a mother came and complained to Muhammad Omar that a warlord had kidnapped and raped her two daughters. Muhammad Omar gathered 30 of the other students, armed them with rifles, and they went to go rescue the girls. From what I read, they only had about 12 rifles for 30 people, so they weren't fully armed. But nonetheless, they went and attacked the warlord's compound, saved the girls, and hanged the warlord commander. A few months later, two warlords began fighting each other over a young boy that they both wanted to rape. 
They both wanted to sodomize this young boy. And in their fighting over the right to sodomize this young boy, they wound up killing several civilians who got caught up in the crossfire. Well, Muhammad Omar and his student followers, they intervened, they dispatched the warlords, saved the boy, and the word began to spread. And more and more people began coming to Muhammad Omar asking for help against their brutal warlords. And in August 1994, Muhammad Omar, also known as Mullah Omar in the West, he and his followers began fighting against these warlords. And this group became known as the Taliban. As most of us who are Muslim know, Talib is the Arabic word for student. Taliban literally means two students in Arabic, but apparently in Afghanistan it just means students. Well, by 1996, these Taliban had captured Jalalabad and Kabul. The Taliban managed to force their way into the United Nations building where Muhammad Najibullah had been hiding since 1992, and they killed him and his brother. Ahmed Shah Massoud, he lost control over Kabul, and he was forced to retreat to his home base in the Panjshir Valley in northern Afghanistan. And once he got there, he united the remaining warlords and former Mujahideen commanders against the Taliban, and they began calling themselves the United Front for the Liberation of Afghanistan. But as we know them in the West, they were known as the Northern Alliance. The Northern Alliance didn't do so well against the Taliban. The Taliban went on to take control of 90% of Afghanistan. All that was left was a Panjshir Valley portion that Ahmed Shah Massoud and the Northern Alliance still controlled. And we all know what happened next. Before we wrap up, I just want to give you some statistics about this war. It is estimated that between 200,000 and 250,000 Mujahideen participated in the war. 30,000 of them came from outside Afghanistan. It is also estimated that 75,000 Mujahideen were killed in the fighting while another 5,700 Pakistani troops were killed in the fighting as well. 